Good to see everyone here this morning. As you know, we have a special guest here with us, Michael Ramsden. Michael works with Ravi Zacharias Ministries. Uh, he's based in Oxford, England, and I think he runs all the global stuff for RZIM. And so I'm not going to say anything else other than this. Michael's going to bring a message that the Lord's put on his heart for us this morning. It's going to be somewhat brief. And then following that, there will be a time of question and answer. Now, here's what I want to say. Make it a question, not a statement. He's the preacher. Leave that to him. So if you have a question, what will happen when he's concluded with his message is that there will be two individuals that will be standing at the bottom of these aisles. Um, what, you'll walk up. They will hold the mic. You'll ask your question, and then please be seated. Does that make sense to everyone? Does that make sense to everyone? Yeah. All right, let's give Michael a warm welcome as he comes to share. God bless you, buddy. Thank you. Well, it really is a uh, delight for me to uh, be able to be with you this morning. And uh, I'm hoping that despite my strange accent, as you can tell, I'm from the South, um, you'll be able to understand what I'm saying. I was actually in Atlanta um, just for a couple of days just before here where we were opening up a new training institute which was a lot of fun. I always love going to um, Atlanta. I can remember the first time I went uh, there 20 years ago and someone giving me grits for breakfast. It was a remarkable experience. Uh, something that not only feeds you, but it also brushes your teeth at the same time. The, uh, the pastor who likes efficiency, it doesn't get any more efficient than that. That really is taking it to a whole new level. Now, what I would like to do, if I may, is share a few, few thoughts with you out of the book of Jonah. And hopefully, as I um, open those up, you'll understand why. Um, there's a bit of scholarly debate about which is the oldest book of the Old Testament. Um, but Jonah is part of a body of literature which is considered to be one of the oldest parts of the Bible, together with a few other books. So it's right up there as one of the most ancient pieces of literature that we have. And it is absolutely fascinating when you look at the narrative of what is happening in Jonah, and then you just look at some of the cultural challenges that we're facing today. And so this story, which may have only come to you in the past as a children's story I'm praying, will actually become a lens through which you may begin to understand some of the greatest cultural challenges that we currently face. Now, the book of Jonah also deals with one of the really big moral objections that people have to the Christian faith as well. And we're not going to have time to deal with all of that in a huge amount of detail. But one of the problems, one of the challenges is often brought to me, especially as I speak in university towns across the world, will be something like this. Look, you Christians, you like to pick and choose what you believe. And you have a problem with that, because if you want to take everything that the Bible says, you want to take that seriously, you've got a God of the Old Testament who seems to be a pretty mean, nasty character who specializes in war, vengeance, and, and uh, uh, mass killing. And then you have a God of the New Testament who you know, seems to be all about goodness and light and being nice and kind, and you like to go for that. But either this God of yours has had like some kind of huge personality change between the Old and New Testament, you know, or he got some serious PR advice at the end of the Old Testament when he gathered some archangels around and said, hey guys, this whole war and vengeance thing isn't working as well as I want. You know, I'm open to new ideas. And one of the angels says, well, how about a message of love? Maybe that will work better. Um, and that's a very common thing that you hear all the time. I know I hear it very frequently, and it's one of the questions I get asked. And of course, what is fascinating, you'll see as we look at the book of Jonah, is that you simply can't sustain that. Um, so let me just read to you a few uh, verses out of the beginning of the book of Jonah. This is chapter 1, and I'm going to read you a few verses out of chapter 4. So this is chapter 1. This is how it starts. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up against before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. 
He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port, and after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from God. So that's how the story starts. I'm going to say a bit about that in a minute, but this is how the story ends. You may remember, after he gets into the boat, there's a big storm, he gets thrown into the water, he sinks into the water, he gets swallowed up by a giant fish, the giant fish vomits him up onto the beach. This is the part of the story that some liberal theologians feel is a little bit fishy. And after that very dramatic experience, he decides he's going to go after, to Nineveh after all. He goes to Nineveh. He tells everyone there they need to repent and turn to God, and the entire city is saved. Everyone. And this makes Jonah angry. Now, you'd think you'd be excited going to a big city, speaking a message which every man, woman, and child agree with. Does that make sense? They all agree. They all turn to the Lord, and they all repent of the terrible things they've been doing. And Jonah is as mad as anything. And then this is how it ends out in Jonah chapter 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, that God had forgiven them. He became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life. It is better for me to die than to live. And God looks at Jonah and says, is it right for you to be so angry? So let's just come back to that initial objection because I want to put it to one side, the idea that the God of the Old Testament is a God of war and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. That supposed dichotomy can be solved by the highly technical process known as reading. <laughs> if you read the Old Testament, you will read about God's love and judgment, and if you read the New Testament, you'll read about God's love and judgment. You'll read about both of them in both. He is the same God all the way through. So trying to deal with it in that kind of simplistic way just simply fails. And Jonah's complaint with God, notice this, is what? God, you are too gracious, you are too kind, you are too compassionate, you keep forgiving people, and I can't stand it. That is his complaint against the God of the Old Testament. You forgive too easily. Now, why do I pick this up? Because this is a very unusual story. This is a story about a, a prophet of God who believes in God and gets angry with God for not not existing. Did you follow that? Okay. He's angry with a God who is there, but he's just not doing what he wants him to do. Jonah hates the people of Nineveh, and he hates them for good reason. The Assyrians have done terrible things to the Jewish people. They've enslaved them, they've abused them, they've killed them. They're now living in a country which is suffering with lack of, economic lack of economic opportunity, lack of political opportunity, lack of social opportunity, lack of social mobility, because they have been destroyed by a nation more powerful than them and has put under their force. And this has now become part of their identity. They identify themselves and they understand all of their history because of this oppression. And so the narrative will be, we don't have opportunity in Israel. We can't get ahead because we're being oppressed by these other guys who have everything. And Jonah hates them. He hates them because they're opposed to his race, they're opposed to his people, and they're taking away what he feels is their future. And, jo and for Jonah, he is being defined by what has happened in the past. I was reading a newspaper article. When you do as much travel as I do, you pick up newspapers all over the world and you, you pick and read them up because there's very often not much else to do. And I was amazed to read these words just a few weeks ago where one um, leading journalist said this. He said, what we're witnessing in the West right now is a new politics of anger. There's anger at the spread of unemployment, leaving whole regions and generations bereft of hope. There is anger at the failure of successive governments to control immigration and integrate new, new arrivals. This uh, is a European newspaper talking about Europe in particular. 
He says, there is anger at the financiers who brought global, the global economy to the brink of disaster and yet continue to reward themselves as if nothing had happened. There's anger at CEOs using public corporations for private benefit. There is anger that while a few have benefited disproportionately from the global economy, many have seen their standards of living stay static or even decline. There is anger at the perceived impotence of governments to control the spread of extremism and terror. There is a widespread feeling that in the world of the 21st century, everything is running out of control. And this has led in France, Greece, Austria, Hungary, and Poland to a resurgence of the far right. Elsewhere, there is an emerging alliance of the far left and radical Islam. The far right are seeking a return to a golden age that never was, and the far left are in pursuit of a utopia that never will be, and both become enemies of freedom. Now, he then goes on to say, the problems we are facing are real and serious. The results of massive dislocations of the global economy, the information age, instantaneous worldwide communication, and the outsourcing of production of services to low-wage economies, is this is making these problems intractable. So intractable is the fact that they are global and long-term, but our best political institutions seem to be national and focused on in the immediate future. Now, here's what's interesting. Reading this editorial in Europe, I could read this, this editorial out in Asia, the Middle East, most parts of Africa, Australia, New Zealand, and probably even here in the United States, and say, well, that sounds just like what we're facing. We're dealing with a huge, global, rising anger. I can remember a couple of um, years ago, I was uh, visiting over in this country, and I was um, invited to um, uh, fly up um, into uh, D.C. to be part of a small consultation of various um, uh, people from uh, different governments to talk about what was then called the Arab Spring. And I was actually, uh, I was in Memphis at the time, and I was meant to be speaking in New York, and so when they invited me, I said, gosh, you know, I'd love to come to this. It sounds very exciting, but I, I can't come because I need to be in, you know, I'm in Memphis right now. I need to be in New York in 36 hours. There's no way I can fly up to D.C., be there in the morning, and be back in New York in time for my lunchtime meeting when I was going to be speaking to a group of 50 hedge fund billionaires in the Harvard Alumni Club. Um, and I wanted to be there because I've always wanted to go to the Harvard Alumni Club. And, <laughs> and so then they said, uh, well, look, we're gonna, we can send a plane for you. We'll just fly you up you know, straight here. You can come into the meeting. You can have two hours, and then we'll fly you to New York. And as soon as they'd mentioned the word plane, I was like, sold. So I'm now sat around the table, and there were only 14 of us around the table. And the first person to speak was the British Foreign Secretary, who would be the equivalent of the US Secretary of State. And as he stood up to speak, I can remember thinking, oh boy, a politician's opening the discussion, this will be, he has nothing to say, and I can remember folding my arms, leaning back in my chair, thinking, I hope he doesn't speak too long. And the first words out of his mouth were so interesting, I found myself reaching down into my suitcase to find a pen and paper to start taking notes on what he said. This was his opening line. He said, hypocrisy is the new global unforgivable sin. And right now, People in the Middle East have access to their leaders' lives. They can see the, the, what, the, what they espouse and how they live. They can see the huge gulf between them. And there is a massive anger right now, and we're not going to be able to contain it. Second thing he said was, in the West, we are so theologically illiterate, we don't even know how to begin to meaningfully engage in a positive dialogue with these people who fundamentally disagree with us. I was so surprised by those opening lines. We're living in a world right now where we have distrust which is operating at all kinds of levels, and this is Jonah's problem. Jonah's problem is he suffered huge injustice, he feels he's been victimized at every single level, and God comes and tells him to go and speak to the people he hates and tell them that they need to seek repentance and ask to God to forgive them, and he knows that God will do it. But he doesn't want them forgiven, he wants them dead. 
And this is one of the huge fundamental problems we have in any culture where we're constantly crying out for justice, is we don't take long enough to ask, what does justice mean? Because justice very often is simply a nicer sounding word to hide what we secretly want, revenge. I can remember many years ago um, going to go and see a James Bond uh, premiere in the United Kingdom. Have any of you watched a James Bond movie? Don't be ashamed if you watch Bond movies. Who, put up your hand if you watch them. Shame on you. you. You shouldn't be wasting your time watching that rubbish. I, I only watch films like that because I have to do cultural analysis and research. And um, this particular film, I'll never forget, there's a scene. It was called GoldenEye. There's this scene where they're looking for a satellite dish and they can't find it. And then all of a sudden, an entire lake drains, and it's clear it's an artificial lake, and there is this giant concrete-built satellite dish, hundreds and hundreds of feet wide, hundreds of feet deep, with wires running across the middle of it with a giant needle in the middle of the thing, which acts as the satellite to control a satellite in space, which they're going to use to cause economic havoc in the United Kingdom. And of course, where does the final scene happen? They're fighting on those wires, hundreds of feet above the ground on the big metal needle controlling the satellite, James Bond and the bad guy. And it looks like Bond's going to die, but of course that doesn't happen because he never dies. And then there's a big reversal, and now the bad guy's hanging on by his fingertips. And James Bond is now looking at the bad guy thinking, do I rescue you? Because as an English gentleman, that's what he's meant to do. And then the bad guy loses his grip and he starts falling to the ground. And at this point, you get multiple camera angles. You have a big wide angle as you see the guy falling 200 feet down onto this concrete floor and he's screaming all the way down. Ah! Then you have a camera from the ground looking up and you can see the body rushing down towards the ground. Then you have a camera that looks like from the guy's eyes. That makes sense as he can see everything falling away from him at great speed and you can hear him screaming all the way down. Then you have a close-up of his face as he's coming down to the ground. Then you have the wide angle. He's screaming, screaming all the way down, multiple angles, and then all of a sudden, bang, he slams into the floor on the back of his head. Now, I'm not medically trained in any way, shape, or form, but I have reason to believe that if you fall 200 feet and land on your head, you're dead. <laughs> Is he dead? Oh, no. <laughs> have you ever noticed this when you're watching a movie? What do you want to happen to the bad guy? Do you want the bad guy caught, put on trial, and sent to jail? Is that what make you happy? Be honest. What do you want to happen to the bad guy? You want him dead. But you don't want him to die slowly, I mean, quickly, do you? You don't want him to trip over his shoelaces, fall in front of a bus, and get run over. You want him to die painfully and slowly so he knows what's coming to him. So, of course, that's what happens. The guy's not dead. He opens his eyes. It's a miracle. He opens his eyes just in time to see a massive explosion directly above him, which releases the large metal needle that's controlling the satellite in space, which now starts hurtling down towards him. <laughs> he starts to scream. You have the wide-angle camera. You have a camera mounted on the needle. You can see the guy's face rushing up towards you. Ah! You have the guy's eyes looking up, and you can see the thing getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and then the huge piece of metal comes all the way down through the guy's mouth and skewers him into the ground. And I was in the theater for the world premiere, and everyone stands to their feet, and they're all like purporting like this. <laughs> everyone was so happy. You see, we very often make a cry for justice, but very often what we're looking for is actually revenge. And there's something fundamentally different between those two. And Jonah doesn't want justice for the Assyrians. He wants revenge. They hurt him. They oppressed his people, his ancestors. He stole their future. Now it's time for them to get payback. And God comes and says, Jonah, you go and tell them to repent because of the great wickedness they have done. And Jonah hears God and goes the opposite direction. He runs in the opposite way 
and he goes down, 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 down. If you draw the geography of what's happening, he goes downhill all the way to the port, he gets into a boat, he goes down into the bottom of the boat, he goes all the way there, and then even from there he gets thrown into the water and he goes down even further still. It's almost like a geographical picture of how far he's prepared to go and how angry he is, because this is the one thing he will not do. He simply won't do it. I've been doing some uh, reading recently about what's called our um, victim culture in which we live, where one of the greatest things that you can say is that you're a victim and you've been victimized. And I was reading uh, this thing that was written 60 years ago, and it just hit me through the eyes. This was written just after the Second World War. It's a fairly long quote. Please forgive me for reading it, but it, it says something. This guy was involved in war crimes tribunals at the end of the Second World War. And the thing he couldn't believe was how the people who had been actually victimized were willing to forgive. But the second and third generation, or the people of the same generation who hadn't actually been through the terror themselves, wouldn't forgive. And here's what he says. He said, it's been, to me it has always been frightening that the people who actually fought and suffered in the war could forgive and begin anew. While others, alive today, who were never at the front of that conflict, find it so hard to forgive an injury that was not even done to them. How can there be any real beginning without forgiveness? I noticed something similar in my own experience when I met war crime officers who had, who had neither suffered internment at the hands of the Japanese nor even fought against them. They were more vengeful and bitter about our treatment and suffering than we were ourselves. I often notice that the suffering that is most difficult to forgive, if not impossible to forgive, is unreal imagined suffering. There is no power on earth like the imagination, and the worst and most obstinate grievances are imagined ones. Let us recognize that there are people and nations who create with a submerged generation a sense of suffering and of grievance which allows them to evade those aspects of reality that do not minister to their sense of self-importance, personal pride, or convenience. Wow. Isn't that incredible? The people who actually suffered the horror directly were able to forgive. The people of the same generation and successive generations who heard about it and imagine what it was like, found themselves un unable to forgive and move on from the past. And this is Jonah's problem. Jonah has heard the reports, even though he hasn't suffered directly himself, and he is so angry, he is so hungry for revenge, and he is so determined that he will not forgive, that he will even abandon the thing that's most precious to him in order, in order to get away. Now, let me say two other things, and then I'm gonna open this up for Q&A, because I was told to try and be brief. Telling an evangelist to be brief proves one thing, if nothing else, that the pastor of this church believes in miracles. <laughs> you see, when you read the book of Jonah, something may have hit you. How can Jonah think that God is loving, kind, compassionate, given God's opening words? Did you notice God's opening words? Go to the great city of Nineveh, preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, how on earth is that a loving statement? Does that make sense? How could you hear those words and think, uh-oh, here's this loving God, I'm going to run away? Does that sound loving to you? You see, again, we live in a very interesting time. We live in a time where most generations around the world right now rebuke at any form of moral correction. We think if someone comes and speaks morally in our life and tells us that what we're doing, we're that what we're doing is wrong, that they must hate us. It's all part of the victim mentality that any form of moral qualification or moral observation, although what we're doing maybe is actually wrong, couldn't possibly be motivated by love, but could only be motivated by hate. 
So if you ever disagree with someone, you must hate that someone. Now, this shows that we do not understand the nature of love. So let me just say a few words about that, and then we're going to just say a few words about what happens in chapter 4. We live in a world that seems to be so hungry for love right now. Most of us go around in this world trying to project an image of ourselves to make ourselves beautiful and attractive to other people so that they'll accept us and welcome us of sin. We're so desperate to be loved that we create an image which we project to everyone else. Now, the trouble with that is people fall in love with the image and not with the reality, which is why it's possible to be powerful, rich, famous, or beautiful, and terribly lonely. People only ever fall in love with the image and the aura that surrounds you. They never get to know the real you. So I can promise you, if you're sat here today and there is no one who knows the real you, no one who knows you for who you really are, all of your weaknesses, fallings, and shortcomings, if no one knows you that way, you are terribly lonely. There's a um, very famous uh, love story in the English language. Some of you may have come across it. It's called, um, uh, written by Jane Austen. Um, uh, and uh, it's called Pride and Prejudice. Have any of you read that? Have any of you seen the six-part BBC adaptation of Pride and Prejudice? Yeah, if you've seen that, you'll notice how much I look like Mr. Darcy. <laughs> if you weren't laughing at that joke, the chances are that you're male and single. <laughs> now, Pride and Prejudice has been one of the most endearing love stories in the English language. There's an amazing scene that happens about halfway through. Pride and Prejudice tells the story of this brilliant, feisty, very independently-minded young woman called Elizabeth and this rather aloof, proud man called Darcy. Now, Darcy falls in love with Elizabeth, but he doesn't know it. He doesn't quite realize his own feeling. One day, he goes to call on her to visit her, and he's shown into the living room where she is, and she's all alone. And he immediately apologizes for coming because, as an English gentleman, he cannot be alone in a room with a woman to whom he is not married. That would be considered dishonorable. And I'd like to say, as the father of two daughters, I believe this is the right, correct, and godly thing that everyone should do. And so he apologizes, and he said, I had no idea you were unaccompanied. If I had known, I would not have called. And he, he bows, and he turns around, and he starts walking out of the room. And he is literally halfway over the threshold when he stops. He turns around, he walks back into the room, he looks at her and he says, it will not do. My feelings cannot be repressed. You must allow me to tell you how much I ardently admire and love you. Now, gentlemen, listen carefully. That line is a winner. <laughs> However, he goes on to say that he loves her against his reason, against his character, and against his own better judgment. And she declared, she rejects this declaration of love. Being a man, he can't understand why. So he asked the question, I may inquire of you how you so easily reject me. And she looks at him and says, you told me you rejected me against your will. You love me against your will, against your reason, and against your own better character. In other words, she says, you told me you love me, even though it goes against all better judgment. You see, true love doesn't exist in the absence of judgment. True love exists in the presence of it. The words I love you are meaningful when the person who speaks them knows you. They know your weaknesses, your failings, your shortcomings, the dark side to your character. They see all of that about you, but they still like you and love you. Those are the most meaningful relationships you have. It's called intimacy. True intimacy. 
if you have a few people like that in the world, when anything bad happens, but even more importantly, when anything good happens, they're the first people you want to tell. You want to share your life with them. True love doesn't exist when you suspend your judgment. True love exists when you actually exercise it. That's precisely how God loves you and I. When God speaks his love over us, it's not because he thinks we're good. Oh, he knows how bad we are. There's no illusion about that, believe me. If you're sat here today and you honestly believe that you're a good person, you don't do anything wrong, there's only one way out of that state of self-deception. You must get married. <laughs> now, this is what true love looks like. The words, I love you, are meaningful from God because He knows exactly what we're like. He's not fooled by any of it. So when God says, what these people have done, they're wicked and they're evil, and now you're going to go and speak to them? Jonah knows that's not a statement of hate. He knows that's a statement that's coming from a God who loves these people, can see the terrible things they're doing, and he's going to do something about it, but he's not going to do what Jonah wants them to do. Jonah knows how deep God's love runs. There's a fascinating philosophical treatise that was written on the nature of love a couple of years ago. I'm going to just quote you a little part of it because it's just so insightful. It's written by a group of contemporary philosophers called the Black Eyed Peas. <laughs> and rather revealingly, they actually entitled this thesis, Where is the Love? <laughs> let, me, let me read it to you. People killing, people dying. Have you ever heard an English person read rap before? This is a new cultural experience for everyone in the room. <laughs> Children hurt, you hear them crying. Would you practice what you to preach? Could you turn the other cheek? Father, 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 help us. Send us from guidance from above, because people have me questioning. Where is the love? I feel the weight of the world on my shoulder. As I get older, people get colder. Most of us only care about money-making. Selfishness got us following the wrong direction. Wrong information always shown by the media. Negative images are the main criteria, although in their song they say, Negative images is the main criteria, but I've corrected the grammar because that's not quite right. <laughs> Infecting the young minds faster than bacteria, kids want to act like they see in the cinema. Whatever happened to the values of humanity? Whatever happened to fairness and equality? Instead of spreading love, we're spreading animosity, lack of understanding leading lives away from unity. And then they have a chorus that goes all the way through, and it's a killer. The truth is kept secret. It's swept under a rug. If you've never known truth, then you've never known love. The truth is kept secret, it's swept under a rug. If you've never known truth, then you've never known love. True love doesn't exist in the absence of judgment, true love exists in the presence of it. When someone truly knows you and likes you and loves you, that is what love really looks like. That's precisely how God loves us. We live in such a shallow culture where we struggle to find true intimacy because we find ourselves unable to exercise true moral conviction and judgment anymore. It is entirely possible to say that is wrong and yet speak with a voice which is filled with compassion and love. And the reason you're speaking is not out of animosity and hatred, it's because you love them, you know them. This is what Jonah knows. It's something that our generation have to discover all over again. Otherwise, we're gonna find ourselves and just simply rip ourselves apart by not understanding what's going on. Now, the next bit, which is really interesting, God then forgives the people and Jonah becomes so angry, we read that he, he feels sick when it says to Jonah, it became very angry. There's sometimes it's hard to translate into English certain Hebrew words. 
Um, it's like, uh, you, know, the, you know, there's a, version, uh, a sentence in one of the Psalms. It says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Many people have heard that, even if you're not a Christian. Now, the word follow there in the Hebrew is the verb that describes the lion chasing down its prey. Okay, so imagine a deer walking along, and it looks over its shoulder and goes, ooh, there's a lion following me. <laughs> That's a fairly weak translation to describe, to describe the verb, right? That's not how the deer feels. So when the psalmist says, your mercy and goodness literally will chase me down like a lion, it's a strong image. So here when it says, to Jonah, he became, it, to Jonah it seemed very wrong, and he became angry, what we're translating there is very wrong, literally, is a word which means he is so angry he's going to be physically sick. I don't know if you've ever felt that kind of blind anger and rage. He is so angry it's going to make him vomit. He is furious, absolutely furious, and it seems wrong. That's why he's angry. He is angry with God because there has been an apparent failure of justice. Justice has not been served. These people did not get what they deserved. They have done terrible things. They've done all kinds of awful atrocities, and now they've been forgiven. Where is the justice in that? So he is mad. He is angry. How could this possibly be? So when God says to him, is it right for you to be angry? He's so angry, he doesn't reply. And when God asks him a second time in chapter 4, is it right for you to feel this angry then about this a plant? He says, it is right for me to feel this way. I'm so angry I could die. So do you feel what he feels. How can he have peace in the face of such a colossal failure of justice? Now, the secret, of course, is actually held in what God, Jonah's own description of God. Jonah says, God, your problem is you are too gracious and you are too compassionate. Now, the word compassion is, we have it in the English language, it's come to us through the ecclesiastical Latin that was written to govern the life of the church. And I can see by just looking at your faces that that one sentence has totally revolutionized your life and you'll never be the same. <laughs> I, I love reading dictionaries. It's one of the things I do. I have multiple dictionaries in my study in Oxford. I have a 20-volume Oxford English dictionary. I love reading dictionaries. If you've never done it, give it a go. The plot isn't that exciting, but it does explain every word as you go through. <laughs> and the word compassion is a compound word, and it carries with it two meanings, two senses. Compassion is when you make a moral judgment about something that is wrong, and then you're moved in your being to do something about it with passio. If you're not moved, you don't have compassion, you have moralizing. So you have compassion in the face of poverty when you make an absolute moral judgment that is wrong, and then you're moved in your being to do something about it. If you're not moved in your being to do something about it, you're not being compassionate, you're just moralizing. You have compassion in the face of racism when you make an absolute moral judgment. That is wrong. And then you are moved in your being to do something about it. If you're not moved in your being to do something about it, you don't have compassion. You're just moralizing again. Again, one of the reasons we live in such a compassionless society is we've just stopped making proper moral judgments anymore. And God looks into the human heart and he says, that is wrong. He gives an absolute moral judgment about it and then he's moved in his being to do something about it. And that is the cross. He wants to forgive. Now, from Jonah's perspective, he can see the issue. 
and he understands it well. You see, the thing with forgiveness is forgiveness always comes at the expense of justice. Justice is when you do something wrong and you get what you deserve, right? Forgiveness is you've done something wrong and you don't get what you deserve, you get let off. So forgiveness is always exercised at the expense of justice. And we wrestle with that at all kinds of levels. How's that fair? However, in the Christian gospel, it actually looks very different. When God forgives, he doesn't exercise forgiveness at the expense of his justice. God exercises forgiveness through his justice. Because at the cross of Jesus Christ, God himself comes into this world, and he makes us one with us, and he takes our sin and what we have done wrong into himself, and he pays the price. He bears the penalty. He takes the hit. He takes the punishment for us. And having fulfilled the requirements of the law, and having paid for what is done wrong himself, he doesn't offer forgiveness at the expense of justice. He exercises his mercy through it. It's called grace. When we're forgiven, it's not because someone got off scot-free. Oh no, it's because someone else paid. I'm, I'm visiting this, this town. I'm, it's been a huge privilege for me to be here. Uh, I've got a, some good friends, members of this church, Peter Sorensen. I've always been interested in cars since the age of four. I think he's interested in cars. So let's suppose I go to visit his house this evening and I see the nice car there and I say, oh, Peter, I've always wanted to drive one of those. Can I borrow it? Let's suppose it's, uh, I don't know, McLaren SLR, something simple. <laughs> if you're not sure what that is, then you need to read more. <laughs> now, let's suppose I borrow the car and I come back 15 minutes later and the car's on the back of a truck and it's no longer a McLaren car, it's now a McLaren, uh, McLaren skateboard. It's still got four wheels, it's just flat. And I say, Peter, uh, something happened. And Peter puts his arm around me and says, Michael, don't worry about it, I'll take care of it. And he forgives me. Now notice, when I get forgiven, it's not because no one paid. He paid. I don't pay, he pays for me, but someone still pays. Forgiveness isn't cheap and it doesn't come free. And the message of the Christian gospel is God has paid for all of us. We've all done things wrong, we've all failed, we all need to be forgiven. So you see, the irony of the story of Jonah is this. When Jonah gets swallowed by this giant fish or whale, or whatever it is, he cries out to God and God forgives him. And Jonah says, God, your forgiveness is amazing. Your love for me is amazing. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for restoring me. From now on, I'll do whatever you want me to do. That's the end of chapter two. Chapter three, he goes and tells everyone that they need to repent and receive forgiveness from God, and they all repent. But whereas Jonah sang when he received forgiveness for what he had done wrong, when he sees God forgive those that he hates, he gets angry again. He's willing to have forgiveness for his life. He's simply not willing to extend it to anyone else. The book of Jonah possibly contains more insight into some of the greatest global struggles we're having in our culture right now than possibly almost any other single book of the Bible right now. Someone once said in our culture, there's nothing better than feeling right. Than fe the only thing that's better than feeling right is feeling wronged. Have you noticed that? how we almost welcome the offense because then we can use it for some other purpose. 
Someone also said, it's ne right now, it's never been easier to take offense, nor has it never been more popular. Because the greater the offense we've suffered, the greater the popularity we can get. And we're clinging on to terrible things which have befallen us, huge injustices, and justifying anger as a response, all the time forgetting that there are things that we ourselves have done wrong. We're just as much in need of forgiveness as everybody else. And that we need to learn to forgive as we have been forgiven. This is the message of the Christian gospel. It brings reconciliation in ways that you may, that are almost impossible to imagine. A couple of years ago, I was speaking in Indonesia. Just before I was getting ready to fly over there, I got a phone call from the organizers saying, look, 83 churches have been bombed in the last month. Are you sure you still want to come? And I said, well, of course I still want to come. I hope you never would have invited me if I'd have bailed just for that reason. So we were over there. On the very first day, I was speaking to a couple of hundred um, church leaders, business leaders, and political leaders, and there was a lady speaking just before I got to share. She whispered what she said into someone's ear, and the person she stood next to spoke her words for her. A couple of months earlier, she'd been in one of these churches. They'd, thrown, um, they'd set the building on fire, and as people came out, they shot the people who came out. As she came out of the building, they asked her to renounce her faith as a Christian, deny her, her belief, and she refused. So they put a gun in her mouth, gave her one last chance, and when she refused, they pulled the trigger. Now what happened is it removed most of her palate and, and more or less one half of her face, and they simply assumed that she was dead. Now incredibly, when the medical team arrived, they were able to save her life. So her face is incredible. You look at it from one side, it looks almost perfectly unaffected. You look at it from the other side, and it's completely disfigured. Now I'd never thought about the palate before, but if you're missing the palate of your mouth, you struggle to make any sound, which is why all she could do was whisper because they were unable to rebuild the palate properly. So she could whisper into the ear and he, she could have this other person speak. She'd just come back, she'd, just, she'd come out of hospital two weeks earlier and she spent the last two weeks, she went back into her community. She went door to door, knocking on everyone's door in the village that she was from explaining how much she loved them, how much God loved them, that she bore no, no ill will to all those who had done this to her. And just as she had been forgiven, they too could find forgiveness. When you truly encounter the person of Jesus Christ, you encounter a depth of forgiveness in your own life, which makes it easy to let go of the hatred and all the stuff that's happened against you. Because there is nothing anyone can do against you or me that will ever rival the sin that we've committed against God. And if he was willing to forgive us, how much more then do we then need to think about how we go on to forgive others? As you sit here, before we go into the time of Q&A, let me just ask you one question and then I'll allow you to ask me one. And the question is this. What do you think being a Christian means? Do you think being a Christian means that you believe certain things, you do certain things, or you feel certain things? If you do, you haven't got it yet. At the heart of the Christian faith is this acknowledgement, I've also done wrong. People may have wronged me, but I've done wrong myself, and I need to be forgiven. And it's a recognizing that God himself has come into this world in human form, and when he went to the cross, he took on into his being everything that's gone wrong in ours, and all the consequences it deserves. He paid the price for it, and through his resurrection, he offers us forgiveness and a new life. And if you receive it, you know, because that power of forgiveness will change everything else in your life 
and totally alter the way in which you see this world. It can bring true peace, true reconciliation. Warring peoples can be brought back together and it gives hope for the future. Thank you very much for listening. You've been very, very gracious and, and very kind. So what we're going to do next is this. If you have a question, um, this is Scott and Gabe. If you have a question, I'm going to encourage you to come down and ask the question. They will hold the mic. And remember, let's ask a question, not make a statement. Is that fair to everyone? So this is Scott. That's Gabe. They're bigger than I am. That's why they're going to hold the microphone. And uh, go ahead and line up at this time, and you can feel free to line up to ask your question. Uh, I'm Matt. Short line. Um, going back to your your opening statement mm -hmm. about the God of uh, perception of a God of an Old mm -hmm. Testament and a New Testament, and uh, I read uh, a chronological annual Bible mm -hmm. every other year, so I chug through the Old Testament and then hit the New Testament, and you can see that that difference. And something I've always struggled with is uh, the, the section when the uh, Moses is bringing the people through the desert. And then Joshua, as they move into the, uh, the promised land, and God instructs them to wipe out everyone. Gets mad at them if they don't wipe out everyone, men, women, and children. And that's, in my mind, I have trouble getting my brain around that relative to the same God that, in the New Testament, Jesus just welcomed the little children. And in the Old Testament, he commanded Joshua to wipe out every child. And the... Uh, uh, I just struggle with that. And okay. I know the reason. Yeah. The reason is obvious that those people would cause the Israelites to follow other gods, and he didn't want that to happen. But I, would, I just struggle with it because I kind of feel like there's, there should be a better way or there could have been a better way. Okay. Let me just say a couple of things um, straight off the bat, which may be helpful. Um, uh, we're in a university town, right, UVA? I guess you have sports teams here. <laughs> Basketball, football, whatever. I have no idea how good they are or bad. Are you doing well at the moment? <laughs> um, so let's suppose you have the coach of the, uh, the football team. He comes back, and he's talking to the student body, and he says, well, we wiped the floor with those guys. You know, the last team, we, we annihilated them. Now, how do you interpret that phrase? That the UVA sports team came onto the field, they pulled out Uzis, and they annihilated the opposition. And the answer is, well... No, because that's not what they mean. Now, here's where we have to be, then be very careful, because depending which part of the Old Testament you're reading, we have different instances in different times. One of the reasons why we know we can't read most of those passages as total annihilation is, at one point it says they were totally annihilated, and then in the next chapter, the Israelites start intermarrying with them. Does that make sense? So if they were totally annihilated, how can you marry them if they don't exist anymore? In other words, at times you have to learn and figure out when the hyperbole comes in. Does that make sense? How the language is being used. And you have to put it, therefore, into the overall historical narrative. So that's the first thing to say. Okay, and that covers actually a large part of that. Now, if you want to go into this in a huge amount of detail, one of our team, um, who recently did his doctorate at Oxford University called Christian Hofreiter, has done his uh, doctorate on the, what are called the Haram texts of the Old Testament, which are the ones that you're referring to. And it's just come out as an Oxford University academic publication. Okay, now, it runs into several hundred pages, 
But if you want to look at something that's going to deal with it in a very systematic, thorough way, dealing with every single instance, every single passage, and a historical narrative on all of it, then that would be the book to get. Okay? It's not an easy book to read, but it is absolutely thorough, and it will look very impressive on your bookshelf. Okay? So there are at least two reasons to get it. Um, the next thing to say is, in all of those instances you're talking about, there is repeated warning. Even in the story of Jonah, the implication is, well, if they refuse to repent and they don't turn away from their wickedness, they will, be, they will perish and they will be destroyed. And you see exactly the same thing in the New Testament too. God's promise is, I want to forgive you. I want you to be restored. I want this to be different. You need to repent. You need to say you're sorry for what you're doing wrong. You need to turn away from it and you need to live differently and follow me. But that isn't just the end of the message. He goes on to say, but if you don't do this, then you too will suffer the consequence of refusing to turn away. So as I say, God's character doesn't change either between the Old or New Testament. So you're going to have to take those three things and then begin to weave them, weave them together. Um, what is abundantly clear, and if you do this, I did this recently when I was reading through, because um, I'm on the same reading plan as you. Um, I was reading through the book of Ezekiel recently, which many people would see as one of those books where you know, God's always talking about judgment all the time. And I got a pen, and I just underlined every single passage when God talks about why he's speaking to them this way. You can do the same with Jeremiah. You can do it with Isaiah. And here's what you'll find. God will say, I've been asking you for generations to turn away from this, and you have refused. And now the calamity will befall you, and you'll be wiped out. I am begging you to turn away. Even now at this last hour, it's not too late. Turn from this, and you can find peace. But if you refuse to turn, you will be destroyed by what you're doing. So there has to be, that makes sense, you have to create that kind of correlation. Even when he's coming up to that, he is begging them, saying, look, it doesn't have to be this way. Let me just say one other thing um, before I finish. You also have to be very careful when how you interpret these passages because it's very easy to interpret them in a way in order to mishear them. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Let me just read to you the opening, the opening words out of the book of Isaiah. Um, uh, so this is what it says at the beginning. This is God speaking. He says, Woe to the sinful nation of people whose guilt, guilt is great. You brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. You have forsaken the Lord. You've spurned the Holy One of Israel, and you've turned your backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart is afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Now, how did you read that? Does that sound encouraging, positive, warm, and affirming to you? That's not how most people read it. They read this and they think, wow, this guy's speaking and he must be really angry. Now, what's fascinating about this is there are two very interesting questions that God asks in verse five. He says, why do you persist in your rebellion? Why do you want to be beaten? Have you ever noticed that sometimes parents ask children stupid questions? Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> they will say things like, do you want to smack? As if any child would go, yeah, good question, and I, I need two, because <laughs> I was naughty now, but I'm gonna do some stuff this afternoon, so let's just get it all over and done with, and then I'm just clear for the rest of the day. Now, on the face of it, these may appear to be quite foolish questions, but actually they're quite profound. Why persist in rebellion? Why do you want to be beaten? In one sense, it is impossible to break God's moral law. Trying to break God's moral law is like trying to break the law of gravity. You could climb to the top of this auditorium, put a red cape around your neck, a big S on your chest, a pair of red underwear outside everything else you're wearing, and jump from the top 
in order to break the law of gravity. What will you break? Okay, you will break yourself while proving the law in the process. In that sense, it is impossible to break God's moral law. You'll simply end up breaking yourself while proving His law in the process. Look, has anyone ever lied to you, stolen from you, cheated? Have you ever been betrayed by a friend? Did it hurt? When you break God's moral law, you will get hurt. This is why God says there is a way that seems right to a man, but its path leads to death. So the last thing you need to bear in mind when you're reading these difficult passages is God isn't threatening them. He's actually issuing them a promise. It's like someone walking, a blind man walking towards the cliff and someone who can see comes along and says, don't keep walking this way. If you do, you'll fall down. And the blind man doesn't listen. So you escalate your language. Look, it's a long fall. You will be utterly destroyed. Still doesn't work. There are sharp rocks down there. You're going to be shredded to pieces all the way down. The fish will feed on your floating body and then the fish will eat everything else. Now, if the blind man turned around at that point and said, why are you threatening me? He's misunderstanding something because you're not threatening at all. You're actually making him a promise. You're saying, if you continue down this path, I can guarantee what will happen. Please stop. Turn around. And God escalates his warning and the scale of it. And nearer and nearer he gets to the impending disaster until eventually they reap what they have sown. And he deals with nations and people the same. He starts off as gently as he can, and he keeps escalating it. Not, out of, not because of hatred, though. It's because of love. Please don't go this way. Don't do this. You persist in this, and this will happen. We have to regain that, that sense of love and God's love and judgment. Can you, can you distinguish um, compassion from participating in social justice marches, protests? You said that compassion is when you have, yeah. com, you know, you're moved to action. So are they the same or is there something to distinguish? Mm. Thank you for asking me a non-political question. So glad we're not touching on anything controversial while I'm here as a guest in your country. Um, the answer is actually yes, there is a difference. But I want to be careful how I phrase it. So I'm going to take it out of any context there. I'm going to put it in a totally different context. Because okay? I don't want to, and then just. But if you were to go to South Africa right now, and you went into any major city, any university campus, and you mentioned Nelson Mandela's name, you'll be booed off the platform. Now, why? Why are they so angry with him? And the answer is, he's seen as a sellout. He came out of prison, and he addressed the nation. And if he said, okay, we were wrong, now it's our turn, we're going to get revenge, there would have been a massive uprising, and blood would have filled the streets. But that's not what he said. He came out of prison, and he said, we need to find a way to move beyond this point and build a new society and forgive each other. And if you want to see the consequence of that, all you need to do is look at what happened economically in South Africa and compare it to what's happened economically in Zimbabwe. If you want to see the difference between those two philosophies working out in a political economy. Because they went in very different directions. In the past, we would normally march with vision. Does that make sense? Not, a, not simply to state a grievance in the past, 
but with a vision for the future. Okay. There is a famous person who lived in this country who talked about having a dream, I seem to remember. It was a fairly decent speech, uh, from what I hear. But that's about the future. Does that make sense? So you're not denying the past or even underplaying it, but you're also trying to create a vision for the future. If all we're doing is protesting, and that's all we do, all we're doing is dragging up old grievances with no vision for the future whatsoever and nothing to help us move beyond it, which is why compassion looks different. As a matter of fact, if you have enough people who are motivated by compassion in society, they can actually turn it around because people aren't just listening to the rhetoric anymore. They're actually seeing what you're doing. And there is a big difference between those. Does that help answer the question? Okay, thank you. By the way, if you don't want to ask the question because you're embarrassed and you want to write it down, just write your question down on a $100 bill, pass it up to the front, and I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll read it out for you. It, it seems that our, our culture values tolerance very high. I would put that as the most uh, highly valued around us. I hear a lot of uh, judge not, lest you be judged. And so as a Christian, mm. how do we bring that together? Just uh, I see a lot of af afraid to call things as they are because of this, I need to show tolerance uh, to all people. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. Okay. Let's remove beyond the pretense I'm not speaking about politics. Ladies and gentlemen, I gladly accept your nomination to be your next president. So, um, yeah, what you say is very true because there's a huge difference between tolerance as we currently understand it and respect. Now, I'm speaking tomorrow night um, uh, at an open forum on, on, on the grounds of UVA, uh, and we'll be touching on this there. Um, but let me just I'll try and answer your question now, because it's so important. We've elevated tolerance to a virtue in a way that historically was never understood. Tolerance originally meant that you were prepared to support those who you thought were evil and grant them freedom of expression. Now, I'm going to unpack that more tomorrow night, but let me just say this. I'm, I'm, here as the, uh, you know, I'm here as a guest. I'm beginning to know the pastor of this church. So let's suppose he comes to me and says, Michael, we're going to be doing some home-cooked meal for cooking tonight. We want you to come around. I do some of the best barbecue that this place has seen. Okay? And he feeds me. And the next day, you see me having a cup of coffee in a coffee shop. And you say, hey, Michael, I hear you want to go and have dinner with the pastor last night. Did you enjoy his food? And I say, yeah, I could tolerate it. Now, let's imagine he sat behind me on the table behind me. I haven't noticed him, and he listens to my answer. Is he sitting there thinking, wow, next time Michael's in town, I'm cooking for him again? Or let's suppose you say to me, well, did you enjoy talking to him? I say, I can tolerate him. Did you like what he says? Yeah, I can tolerate his opinion. Would you be happy with that? Let's suppose you had a race riot in this town, and I came and said, you know what? You guys need to learn to tolerate these other guys. Would you be happy with that? It's very interesting. In modern parlance, tolerance is a negative concept. Okay? In engineering terms, tolerance is how much error or weakness you can build into the system before the whole thing collapses. Make sense? You build tolerance medically. Does that make sense by being able to fight off diseases? Nobody, in, as we understand the word in our modern day, wants to be tolerated. They may even feel insulted by it. If I stood here and said, I'm prepared to tolerate you, the guy who asked the question, what do you hear me saying? Here's what you hear me saying. Look, you're wrong and maybe even offensive, but you're probably too stupid okay, or too stubborn to recognize that. But I'm gracious and kind. 
I'm so kind. You can call me Michael the Merciful. I'm, I'm going to put up with you. So I'm saying something about my character to elevate me at his expense. If I looked at him and said, I'm prepared to respect you, and I do respect you, now I'm saying something very different, aren't I? Because when I look at him and say, hey, I respect you, I'm saying there's something about you that demands I treat you a certain way, even if I disagree with you. But here's the key point. You cannot tolerate someone and disagree with them, but you can respect someone and disagree with them. That is why tolerance is actually a virtue which is the enemy of any free society. Tolerance will always shut down debate. You never disagree because to disagree is to be intolerant, and the hallmark of the liberal democracy that we try to establish in the West was that we have to learn to disagree without being disagreeable. We have to find ways in which we respect people and we differ about ideas. So we're now using tolerance to shut down all kinds of debate and it is utterly mistaken. And actually the simple truth is none of you here want to be tolerated. If I spoke at UVA tomorrow and said, hey, I'm here today to give a message about why we all should, all should tolerate Hispanic people in America, do you think I'll get a visa to come back here next year? There is a big difference between that message and saying, no, we need to learn to respect everyone. There is a very big difference. But the big picture issue, as I say, is you can respect and disagree. And it's the foundation stone of a free democratic society. I would lay down my life, does it make sense, to fight for that virtue. Now, either we therefore replace the word tolerance with the word respect and we recognize what's going on, or we capture the original meaning of the word tolerance, tolerare maris, again from the Latin, from the church. The, the original doctrine of tolerance went something like this. Supposing you're the king, head of the army, and head of the church. Right? Those are three big positions. Someone comes along and is teaching doctrine that you think is heretical and will send people to hell. So they're now teaching something which you think will result to people going to hell forever. Should you use the army to kill them? That make sense? Because then they'll stop spreading these stupid ideas and you'll save everybody. And the answer was no, king, you shouldn't do that, and here's why. If you use the army to shut this guy up, you won't change his mind, you'll send him to hell straight away. What's more, everyone who agrees with him will be scared to say anything, there'll be no opportunity for dialogue or conversation, they'll be lost too. And everyone will live in fear of you. And you'll never know who you can trust, because if you rule by fear, you can trust no one. However, if you, O king, use the army to protect this person from those who are coming against him, you will win his respect. He will talk with you, and you have the opportunity to change his mind. Not only that, the, those who also agree with him will also feel free to voice their expression too, and you can engage with them too, and who knows, maybe some minds will be changed. And the people will come to respect you. And when you rule out of respect, you don't need to fear people because you have their trust. Hence this phrase, tolerance of evil. It sounds strange, tolerare malice. That's the origin of the word tolerance. Use your power to protect those who disagree with you from harm from the general society to open up a dialogue that you can learn to disagree. Do, do you see the difference? Anyway, it's a very good question and we could talk a lot more about it. Please keep asking difficult questions because I charge by the word. And so, this will be the last question. <laughs> Make it a good one, Chauncey. Hey, um, I'm a business guy. I like uh, looking forward into the, what, what the end looks like, and I'm, I do that with my faith as well. I want to know what's, what, is the, what does uh, the Bible say about end times, and what does the Bible say about how Jesus is going to come back, and what does that look like, and I'm 
I'm very curious to know what, uh, just your broad view about it. <laughs> you know, an old guy said that you should never attempt to speak out of the book of Revelation if you're young because you'll be proved wrong. You should only start answering questions like that when you're 80, because by the time everyone figures out you're wrong, you'll be dead. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> Let me say two things, just in relation to it. I remember speaking to a group of theology students at Oxford University once, and I asked them the following question. What happens at the end of the world, according to the Christian view? And they talked about all kinds of things. They talked about judgment, which is true. They talked about a new heaven and a new earth, which is true. They talked about... Um, uh, you know, potential growing chaos, you know, which is potentially true. They talked about new bodies and all. And I kept saying, what else? You're missing something. You're missing something. And then eventually one of them went, ooh, there'll be a banquet. I was like, great. I'm a Middle Easterner. Food is important to me. Banquets are very important. What kind of banquet? And they're like, a wedding banquet. Now, isn't that interesting? It took us 15 minutes to get there. Imagine you're having coffee in Starbucks with somebody and you're just about to order them a second cappuccino, and they go, wait a minute, is it, is it, is it, is it 1.30 on Saturday today? And you're like, yeah, and they're like, I'm getting married at 1. And they get up and they run. Now, what would you make of this person? There has to be something wrong with them, right? Have you ever met someone who's about to get married? All they can do is talk about the wedding. It doesn't matter what you ask them about. You know, gosh, unusual weather we're having at this time of year. Yeah, I know, we're really thinking about how it could affect the wedding. So you change subject. You know, so where are you from? Well, I'm from here, but, you know, but my fiance's from there. And it doesn't matter what you ask them about. Okay, it's sickening. They're going to bring it back to the wedding. You can't escape it. <laughs> what on earth would you make of someone who forgot their own wedding? What you might be tempted to say is, you know what, the other person was spared the agony of marrying you because if, if this really means this little to you, the fact that it didn't happen is probably good. What does it say about the church of Jesus Christ, that when asked what happens at the end of the world, the last thing we remember is that there's going to be a wedding. A wedding is a sign of commitment. And you can tell what people are really committed to by how they live, how they speak, how they spend their time, how they spend their money, what they think about and what they're anticipating for. And we're living in a world right now that's bereft of commitment. And, as, and it's another side in which we build intimacy. We don't have time to go into that now. But there will be a wedding. There will be a wedding banquet. And we better be living in light of it. Now some of you right now, you're messing around in relationships because you're scared to commit. And you're floating around on the surface and you don't really know what real intimacy likes because you're simply not prepared to make that kind of binding commitment. And if you're in the church and that's true of you, here's what I'd say to you. You need to get married. It's not fair that you should be happy. No, 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 I didn't say that. Um, <laughs> you need to overcome that problem. But here's the second thing too. And I'll end on this note because it ties in with the theme we had. It's about judgment again. Let's just talk about that one more time. Judgment's a really interesting thing. Let's supposing we go out of the building, you go over to your car, and you were invited here as a guest. You came here this morning, you don't believe in God, you came as a guest because they said this guy might be interesting to listen to, and they can't, you can't believe you've been lied to so badly. So you're standing by your car, you have your car key in your hand, 
And as you're about to put the key in the door, you, you step back, and someone has come with a bunch of keys and walked up and down the side of your car. I mean, how would you feel? You'd look up to heaven and you'd say, God, is this your idea of a joke? I don't believe in you. I don't like you. I didn't like the guy who was speaking about you, and now I come back and this happens. And you feel powerless, right? I mean, what could you possibly do about that? There's nothing you could do about that. But imagine while you're sitting there feeling incredibly frustrated, you see that there's a security camera that's been installed in the parking lot. So you come back inside the building and you say, is there any way that security camera's on? And sure enough, it is. And it's got a prime view of your car. So they wind back the recording, and sure enough, not only do you see who vandalized your car, you recognize them. It's your next-door neighbor. They've hated you from the moment you moved into your room, apartment, house, whatever, for no reason whatsoever. They've made your life a misery, and they walk past your car, they stop, they look around, they look at the plate, they take out their keys, and they run off, skipping and singing a song. So you say to them, can I have an MP3 of that? Do we still do MP3s? I used to say, give me a DVD of that, but I know those things don't exist anymore. Anyway, whatever it is. So now, the next day, you invite your next-door neighbor around for a cup of coffee. You sit them in your front room, you give them a coffee, a piece of cake, and they're about to bite into this chocolate cake that looked like it just fell from heaven. And, and then you say to them, ooh, just before you have the cake, there's a short movie I want you to watch. <laughs> and you pull the remote out of your pocket and click, play. And up it comes in glorious Technicolor. <laughs> How do you feel now? You're feeling pretty good, right? This is a good moment. And this is a good day. By the way, if your neighbor weighs twice as what you weigh, then you need to have two friends with you when you do this. Okay? <laughs> You need to have twice as much weight on your side than on their side. Let's suppose you're the guy who did the vandalism. You got away with it. They don't know that who vandalized their car. Now the sucker is feeding you coffee and cake in his front room. He hasn't got a clue what's going on. You're about to bite into the cake, and then up comes the video. How do you feel? Have you ever noticed that when we get caught doing something wrong, we often feel angry about it? Have you ever noticed that? The way you respond emotionally to the prospect of ultimate judgment tells you what side of the law you're on. If you're a victim, you long for justice. You welcome it, and when it happens, you sing about it. But if you're on the other side of the law, you live in fear of it, and you may even hate it. If I were to say, God will come into this world and judge it, and you felt angry about it, what does that tell you about what side of the law you stand on vis-a-vis -vis him? See, it's very revealing, isn't it? He will come back to judge the living and the dead, but we've also know one other thing. It's his will and his desire that no one should perish and all should have eternal life. He's actually paid the biggest price to get us out of the mess we're in. We are literally dead and dying, and he's come on a rescue mission to save us. If we reject him, we're gonna feel the full force of the consequence, but if we accept him, we're gonna have the full force of the benefit. As you leave this building, just see if this helps. Let's supposing over lunch you're in contact with your parents and they ask what you were doing this morning and you say you, they were listening to, you were listening to me speak and, and they say, Michael Ramsden, English guy? And you're like, yeah, tall, yeah, good looking. Oh, yeah, sure, that's the guy. <laughs> and they say to you, there's something you don't know. When you were a little kid, Michael was visiting our town and you were dying from kidney failure. 
he offered himself up to be tested, and he turned out to be a perfect genetic match for you. And the only reason you're alive is he went under the knife that day, and he gave his kidney to save you. Would that change the way you felt about me? My guess is, even if you didn't enjoy today, you would come back, you'd try to find my email, you'll find my number, you'd reach out to me, and you'd drop me a line and say, Michael, I just want to say thank you. I, I never knew this. No one ever told me before. I wish I'd known while you were here. If you're ever back, you know, can I take you out for dinner? That's my guess what you'll do. Well, Jesus Christ has done a lot more than to simply give us a kidney. He actually gave everything to rescue us out of this world. He laid down his life in order that we might have life. And he's paid the price of what we have done that we may know a true forgiveness. He sees everything where we've gone wrong in our lives and he loves us so much. And if you've been forgiven by him, you need to have no fear of that day of judgment, not because you're good, but because you've been forgiven. And you know there will come a time when he will wipe away every tear and he will deal with all the injustice in this world. And that's why they'll be singing on that day because it'll be a day of enormous liberation and huge rejoicing. Well, look, you've listened to me so well. Thank you so much. You've been very, very gracious. Thank you for giving me this time. It's been a privilege to be here with you. I want to thank you for your patience. Um, he warned you at the beginning that he was going to go long, and he did not lie to you. He was honest with you. Michael, thank you again. Let's give Michael a hand one more time. Before we exit, I want to ask you a question. Have you given your life to Jesus? Have you done that? What we heard about this morning is a call for you and I to consider who Jesus is and then ask ourselves this question, have I accepted him? Here's what I know. You know whether you have or not. You know. And I want to give you the opportunity to accept Jesus before you exit this auditorium. There's something about the person of Jesus that helps us to live the life that we were just challenged to consider. God does not come to us and say, you need to be a forgiving person without him offering to forgive you. And it's through his forgiveness that you're equipped and empowered to forgive others. God shows up and says, by the way, Jesus is the only person in antiquity that ever said, love thy enemy. But guess what? The way we do that is because we were an enemy of God, and yet He loved us. And when you encounter the love of Jesus, it absolutely radically alters everything. Everything. And I know some of you have been sitting here feeling very frustrated because you've loved what Michael had to say and the challenge he brought, but you're thinking, I cannot do it. You can't on your own. But if you accept Jesus, I promise you, you can. You can. Because here's what one of the most prolific writers in the Newer Testament said. He said this, Jesus Christ living in me is the hope of glory. He lives in me. And the reason why is because I've invited him in. 
I'm going to ask that we would stand together in closing. And as we stand together, I'm going to give you the opportunity to say yes to Jesus. So as we stand together, this isn't about the person on your left, and it's definitely not about the person on your right. This is about you. This isn't about your grandmother's faith, your mother's faith. It's not about the faith of the friend that invited you here this morning. This is about you and your decision to accept Jesus. The way this works is simple, but it's eternal. The way this works is simple, but it changes absolutely everything. And it's simple enough to say something like this. Jesus, I recognize the way that I'm living is bringing me to a place that I don't want to be. So Jesus, as I turn around, I'm going to ask that you would forgive me for the way I've been headed, and I want to move into your love so that you will empower me to live a different life. I'm going to pray a prayer along these lines. And if you've never accepted Jesus, I'm going to encourage you, if not beg you, to pray this prayer and to taste and see that the Lord is good. And so we're going to pray this prayer now. So if you would leave your heart wide open, wide open, but you would close your eyes and pray this prayer with me, you can repeat it to yourself between you and God. But I know some people this prayer or even praying is brand new to you, so I would like to help you do that. But this is about a prayer between you and God. And the prayer goes something like this. Jesus, I don't know everything there is to know about who you are. But I sense in this moment, I need you. I've been walking and living in a way that is taking me further from God. I now stop in my tracks and I turn and Jesus, I face you. I ask that you would forgive me of my sins because you and you alone have the power to forgive me. So Jesus, would you forgive me of my sins? Would you cleanse me of all unrighteousness? And now, Jesus, would you allow me to follow you for all the days of my life? Jesus, from this moment on, I choose to follow you. If you have prayed that prayer, you have declared that from the depths of your soul. We have people that are stepping out now. They're part of our prayer team. They're part of the leadership of city. They're beginning to move down front. If you have prayed that prayer, I'm going to encourage you to step out from where you're standing and that if you would come down front and you would share with one of these people that you have prayed that prayer. And what they're going to do is talk to you briefly about what it looks like to begin a journey with Jesus. Here's what I know about a journey of faith in Jesus. We never do it alone. It's always done with other people, but it begins alone. It starts between you, Jesus, your sin, and God, but then from here on out, it's something we do with others. If you have prayed that prayer, I'm going to encourage you to step out and come forward. For the rest of us, 
what we're going to do now is we're going to spend just a moment in worship. I know that the hour is late, but I believe with all of my heart it is time for us as a church family to worship God in spirit and in truth because of what we've heard this morning, because every bit of it was yes and amen, and it was from the heart of God. So now let's allow our hearts to respond to Him in worship, because that is what pleases Him. Are you ready to worship? Are you ready to worship? Let's worship Jesus Christ together. Once your heart is satisfied in worship, you can begin to slip out quietly, but let's worship Him in spirit, and in truth, let's worship. Thank you. 